Hello, and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work, and how scientists are studying them. In episode two, we heard about how we hear. And this week, we're looking at what happens when we can't hear so well. From common causes of hearing loss to the intricate tech that's being developed to help diagnose and treat it. In our last episode, dancer and actress Vita described growing up struggling to hear and how her life changed for the better when she underwent a surgery in her 20s that gave her functioning eardrums for the first time. It's an amazing story, but unfortunately, one that is quite rare. And that's partly because the sheer complexity involved in the process of hearing means that there are a lot of different things that can go wrong. As a result, the experiences of people with hearing loss are vast and varied. And although we typically think of older people losing their hearing, it can happen earlier in life too. That's what's been happening to Helen who was only in her 40s when she started noticing that something was wrong. I'm a dance artist, scholar, choreographer, so I teach on undergrad and postgrad dance programmes. Probably about five or six years ago, I started to notice that I wasn't maybe hearing everything brilliantly. Then I was at a conference, thought I was hearing the presentation and everything quite well, and then the person that was presenting sort of stepped behind uh, monitor and all of a sudden I was really confused as to why I, I couldn't hear her and so it was at that point that I started to recognize how much I had been lip reading and at that point I started to sort of go and have some tests done and, and generally they weren't really conclusive as to knowing anything other than here's some hearing aids that will help amplify volume and things so I've been wearing hearing aids now for four years which definitely help hugely although come with their own kind of further considerations in terms of how sound now feels to me and what my relationship is with my hearing. I think it's affected me throughout different aspects of my life. I mean, my family, you know, super patient and everything, but sometimes I'm like, God, it must be so frustrating. I'm asking you to repeat yourself or I've just heard completely incorrectly. And then outside the home, that same scenario of mishearing and misunderstanding leaves me feeling stupid. And I absolutely hate that feeling is horrible feeling inside I literally in that moment just want to walk away and just wish the whole conversation hadn't happened my biggest thing feels like spatially I can't locate sound in space and I find that difficult I had a situation where students laughed because I looked completely to the wrong person and started answering the wrong person that felt horrible Helen told me that her dad started losing his hearing when he was only in his 50s, and doctors have suggested that her genetics could be playing a role in how her hearing is deteriorating. But beyond that, they haven't been able to pinpoint an explanation for her hearing loss. So, why do some of us lose our hearing, and why is it sometimes so hard for scientists and doctors to answer that question? I sat down with Professor Tina Stankovic, who's the Bertarelli Foundation Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology, otherwise known as Head and Neck Surgery, at Stanford University's School of Medicine. 
Hearing loss is the most common sensory deficit across the globe. It currently disables nearly half a billion people. And the World Health Organization estimates that more than a billion young people are at risk of hearing loss, primarily due to recreational noise exposures, because most people now walk around with something in their ears. And these music levels or whatever people are listening to are at this point, not regulated. And if you crank up the volume, that can be dangerous. And then there are other venues such as sporting events where all the cheering and everything that goes on can be really loud. In fact, in the United States, Kansas holds the world record in having achieved the loudest noise levels at a football game. And that was comparable to noise levels of a jet engine. So so really remarkable. I went to a festival once when I was about 21 in America, actually, and it was the only time that I've heard a sound that I've thought, I need to get away from this. It's so loud that it's physically hurting my ears. And I was just moving further and further back from the stage until I just left altogether. I was actually amazed that it was allowed. I remember looking around at people and being like, how is this? Is it just me? You know, How is this allowed to happen? And you are really bringing a very important point. When we're so uncomfortable, we oftentimes don't speak up. We assume that others must be having a great time. But if someone speaks up, then everyone around that person will agree, wow, this is really loud. So if someone sets an example of either speaking up to reduce the volume or using hearing protections, it does generate a wave of others following. So some kinds of hearing loss can be caused by exposure to loud sounds. How does that actually work? Is it just like too much vibration on these delicate cells? There is a variety of mechanisms depending on sound intensity. And when sound intensity is what we consider tolerable, meaning that you go to a loud rock concert and you may have that cottony feeling in your ears and you don't hear it as well, and you may even develop some ringing and buzzing, and then after a day or two or a week, it goes away. And you may assume that you are now fine because everything is back to normal. However, typically, it's not really back to normal. And what happens in the inner ear is that synapses, which are little tiny connections between these sensory cells and neurons, disappear. And once they disappear, that sets in motion a series of slowly degenerative steps that lead to the ultimate loss of neurons that make up the auditory nerve. So these are the most subtle changes. But then the more overt changes where people have a similar exposure to a loud rock concert, but then that hearing loss never goes away and tinnitus may still linger, that can be associated with indeed physical damage to these cellular structures and microanatomy within the inner ear. And when we think of tinnitus or ringing in the ears, for example, what is that? Is the, are the nerves just overstimulated so they kind of keep stimulating themselves? How does it work? Tinnitus is a phantom sound produced by the brain, and it's typically produced due to damage in the inner ear. The reason we know that is pretty much the most sure way to get tinnitus is exposure to loud noise. In fact, in the United States, the number one and two disability claims of the veterans are tinnitus and hearing loss. 
So once you lose input from the inner ear or it's reduced, the brain tries to compensate for it and it starts to make sound of its own. And we know that this is hyperactivity in the brain that has been demonstrated both by electrophysiologic recordings in people as well as by imaging. And if we do fancy imaging, which is not yet routinely clinically used, it's called functional MRI, we see an increased activity in auditory centers in the brain in people with tinnitus. And so what are some of the other causes of hearing loss if it's such a common issue for people to face? We spoke about noise-induced hearing loss, which is a very common problem. In addition to that, it's genetics. And by now, there are more than 200 deafness-causing genes that have been identified. In addition to that, it is different drugs, such as drugs that are used to treat cancer or drugs that are used to treat infection or drugs that are used to treat high blood pressure. So some of them can cause hearing loss, not all of them, but some of them. Age can cause hearing loss, as well as different infections. And these infections can be either bacterial or viral. And when it comes to age-related hearing loss, then what is happening there? Why do most of us lose our hearing as we get older? So even the existence of a separate cause of age-related hearing loss is being debated because some say that it's all environmental. Because if you study tribes in Africa that are not exposed to occupational noise levels or recreational noise levels that we see in the modern society, they have normal hearing well into their old age, which is impressive. On the other hand, we know that there is definitely genetic predisposition in some people and even genetic predisposition to noise vulnerability. Because if you go to a loud concert and you go with your friend, after the concert, your friend may have some hearing loss and ringing in their ears, but you may not. And you attended the same event and were exposed to the same music intensity. So basically, we think of age-related hearing loss as a combination of a genetic predisposition plus environmental insults. And the most common environmental insult is noise exposure, but there are additional ones that we talked about, such as drugs and infection. Tina told me that although hearing loss is so common, currently we're largely limited to two treatments, hearing aids, which are what Helen uses, and cochlear implants. Hearing aids amplify sound, and they work pretty well for people with mild to moderate hearing loss. They do require a fair amount of maintenance, though, and those who've experienced good natural hearing will likely notice a difference in how the world sounds. For example, Helen said it took her a long time to get used to the sound of her own voice when using hearing aids. And, like she said, she struggles to place where sound is coming from within a room. The other main treatment is cochlear implants. These are devices that are implanted into the body that electrically stimulate the auditory nerve, essentially bypassing all the other cells that are missing or not working. They're used in people with profound hearing loss and, although not quite the same as natural hearing, can make a huge difference in people's lives. However, as Tina told me, there are many, many people who fall through the cracks, who are no longer benefiting from hearing aids but don't yet qualify for cochlear implants. And at the moment, there are no FDA-approved drugs for the treatment of hearing loss. There is no cure. 
And for Helen, although the hearing aids help a lot, she would love to understand in more detail what is happening to her hearing. In terms of the not knowing really what's going on with my hearing, that is what's really difficult because it feels that like putting a plaster over a cut that keeps oozing or something, you know, it's the hearing aids feel like a short term fix or feel like a sort of a, a fixing point. But there seems to be no want to investigate further actually why and what's going on with the hearing loss. I would really like to know because I sort of feel obviously if there's something that can be done to improve my natural hearing, that would be amazing over wearing hearing aids for the rest of my life and also concerned that at the moment my hearing is it's gone from moderate hearing loss to severe hearing loss in four years so also kind of going okay does it keep dropping does it do I just lose my hearing altogether and I kind of get the response from people when I have appointments that it's kind of oh well you know that there's there's great hearing aids these days there's technology that will be able to support your hearing however bad it gets And so again, it's the sticky plaster thing rather than why is my hearing continuing to deteriorate? Helen's questions about what precisely is happening to her hearing are shared with scientists like Tina, because it turns out actually unpicking what is going on when someone is losing their hearing isn't as straightforward as you might think. Today, we cannot tell anyone precisely why they're going deaf in terms of exactly what's happening in their inner ear. And even if they have an identified genetic cause of hearing loss, so we know what gene is responsible, we still don't know what the microanatomy in the inner ear looks like. Why is it so difficult to see inside the inner ear? I imagine if you think of going to the doctor and they have, you know, a little light and a little scope thing that they look in, does that not getting them all the way into the inner ear? Uh, not at all. It's actually a common misconception among people in general, because they often refer to the inner ear as the area where you put your little pinky in the ear canal when you're trying to scratch it. And just because it's deeper in, it's not on the surface, people start calling that the inner ear. However, the inner ear is really located in the base of the skull. It's a tiny organ. It's encased in the densest bone in the body, and it has a very complex three-dimensional anatomy. The inner ear has one hearing organ, which is called the cochlea, and it's spiraling, and it has five balance organs. So because of this complexity, plus its tiny dimensions and encasement in the densest bone in the body, that's why the inner ear has evaded diagnostic imaging at the cellular level. Today, we can see the inner ear using computer tomography scans known as CAT scans or magnetic resonance imaging uh, known as MRI. And while that can tell us if there is some obvious bony anomaly of the inner ear, or if there is a tumor arising from hearing or balanced nerves that causes hearing loss, it cannot show us cells in the inner ear or other cellular structures. I see. So I guess what we do know then maybe comes from autopsies. So you're kind of catching people at the end rather than while the mechanism of hearing loss is taking place. Absolutely. Today, the only source of information about the cellular basis of hearing loss in humans comes from studying autopsy specimens. This is when 
people die of completely unrelated causes, and they generously donate their ears for study. And then we remove this bone. It's called the temporal bone, the bone within which the inner ear sits. And through a laborious process that takes many months, we decalcify that bone and then embed it, and then we can section it and stain it, and then look at what is wrong. And you are correct, that's the end stage of degeneration and doesn't really help the living patient at the time when they come to see us in clinic. Do you imagine that there may be technologies that could be used for studying the inner ear then in a, in a living person? Yes, and indeed we are working on them. And this was thought to be impossible even 10 years ago for all the reasons that we have discussed. And now we are developing a tiny imaging probe, less than a millimeter in diameter, that we can insert into the inner ear and observe the microanatomy and establish precise diagnosis for a given patient. At this point, we have tested the probe in human cadavers, because we are developing the probe for human applications. So it meets all the anatomic requirements and constraints. And we really look forward to testing it in living people, hopefully in not too distant of a future. And so if you did get a good look, a good picture of what the inner ear looks like, what could you then use that information to do? We could use that information to design personalized therapies. There are lots of emerging technologies that are incredibly exciting. One of them is gene therapy in all its shapes and forms. Other molecular therapeutics where you can package nanoparticles that are specifically decorated with molecules that allow them to reach the cells of interest. There is a whole growing branch of small molecule therapeutics. And the beauty of the inner ear is that we could deliver them locally, directly to the inner ear to avoid systemic side effects. We are excited about what's on the horizon. And while we haven't been able to offer biological and pharmacological therapies for hearing loss, I think the future is very exciting. Scientists like Tina and also David Corey, who we spoke to last episode, are working hard to create these new therapies. And there are already promising results replacing some of the 200 genes known to cause deafness using gene editing. Their goals are very much in line with Helen's when I asked her what she would hope the future holds. I think to, yeah, to find out really what is my hearing loss and to find out if something can be done, if there's an intervention that I would love to be able to hear and communicate confidently again, that would be my biggest thing. And that's it for this week's Focus episode. Thanks so much to Tina Stankovic and Helen for sharing their stories and expertise. Join us in two weeks' time for a deep dive into the neuroscience of memory, where we get a look at the brain of a London cabbie and uncover what it means to remember. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode. <laughs>